There's a place some of us go each fall. A place where the ring of a bell filters through the covers and hurried shouts of bird up bring everybody to attention. A place where the playful puppies around our house are transformed here to driven bird finders. And where there is confidence in the slow pace of the silver-muzzled old veterans. Where our friends tell the same old stories each year, and none of us seem to mind. Where great shots are forgotten, and epic misses never fade. Where an old gun will have a story to tell, if only it could speak to us. Where all the good seats are claimed by the dogs. If you have a camp, you know these things all too well. If you don't, well, you're always welcome here. So pull up a chair, tell us about your favorite gunner dog, and we'll admire the birds together and talk the night away by the fire. Welcome to Bird Camp. A quick thank you to our sponsors. Aspen Thicket Grouse Dogs, located in Central Upper Peninsula, offering grouse-centered dog training and home to Uncle Grouse. Aspen Thicket knows that the rough grouse is essential to developing the skills to effectively pursue the king. From puppy development through finished dog work, you can trust Uncle Grouse with your hunting companion. If you're dissatisfied with your grouse hunting, try doing what your uncle told you to do. And Collar Clinic. Located in northern Michigan and providing e-collar, GPS, and other dog-related electronics since 1988. Collar Clinic can provide new and reconditioned systems and accessories of many major brands. They also repair current and older systems and when you're ready to upgrade also have a trade-in program for working and those non-working systems. Get the tools you need to make your dog exceptional at Collar Clinic. And be sure to use the discount code BIRDCAMP on your next purchase. A quick sponsor note, Second Chance Bird Dogs. A perfect fit doesn't always happen for a puppy. A dog at Second Chance learns its job. Birds, guns, and teamwork with the handler are the milestones along a journey to a new home and life. The training a Second Chance Bird Dog receives helps it make the most of its second chance. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Bird Camp Podcast. I am your host, Joe Schwenke, and I am once again in one of those great places up here, and uh, that is at the Grumpy Old Constitutionalist Grouse Camp. And uh, we, I don't think anyone flushed a woodcock today, did, or at all this week. Thank God. <laughs> it, no, not one. It, uh, it did keep me on task looking for grouse, but uh, I'm up here with... Uh, Guys, go ahead and quick introduce yourselves. Dennis Stackowitz. Perry Misadi. Dave Weaver. And, uh, and we've been up here, and quite honestly, aside from out in the woods talking about grouse, we don't talk about birds in the house. No. Almost, no, almost not at all, which makes it more fun. We've argued about civilization with Dave, psychology with Perry. I'm, I'm just the sparky here, so... <laughs> 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 I, I don't know how I got into this group anyway. I have a an education that stopped at 12th grade. You're like the moderator because I just spew hate. <laughs> Only for woodcock and long-haired dogs. But, yeah, true. I mean, yeah. 
But uh, we're kind of going to go over some of the things here. We've had a, a unique experience. Uh, we always do, but uh, kind of jumping into some of the grouse hunting, and then we'll just follow the show notes and, and go where it leads us. But uh, we arrived in a snowstorm. You guys did. You guys totally arrived yeah. in the snowstorm. I didn't think about that. I thought I'd be hare hunting and stuff on snowshoes with a 22, and then a two hours worth of snowstorm driving up here. Yeah, I think there might have been a benefit in that, though. Mm-hmm. You know, you give them, give them a pretty significant weather event that that they have to respond to and make their hold up for that day, because it was kind of like one of those super heavy, wet, rain, sleet nobody's moving type thing and uh after that they came out hungry and they were out mm-hmm. yep it and it took a while for me at least to kind of dial in a little bit right uh, you were you were we were actually we all arrived on a different day yeah so you know at that point it was look at your onyx grab a map find something that looks like the right cover and start hunting um and we've all had, I think we've all had successful days every day. You know, we produced birds. We've had good and bad dog work. Define success. Right, right. And and a famous handler once asked me, you know, what what do you want out of it? And that's that's the bar for success. And uh, I always had something I could complain about if I wanted to look at it that way. Whether it was the dog work one day or my shooting the next, there was always one thing that was out of place. Mm. But... Uh, well, you know, and success, like success to me is time spent with good friends, uh, the camaraderie, the brotherhood that goes along with this, uh, the fruits of watching your dog work because we spend a lot of time training our dogs and they're not perfect. And if you get hung up on them being perfect when you're in the woods and you're missing the point of the brotherhood of what we're trying to do here with the hunt um and that that really what's that's what's important to me is just this this bond that we all share of like-minded people um although we do argue over things we're not all clones but you know getting out in the woods and passing along this continuing tradition that we were taught many many years ago mm-hmm. And like you said too, we're not clearly not all clones. Differing opinions. Mm-hmm. Go back to the podcast before. If you can't be a gentleman, figure out how to be a gentleman. Was right. one of my feedback. Somebody said that that was my fa- the favorite quote of that other podcast. You have to figure it out. You know, you can disagree all you would like, but you're going to do so in a way where camp is still fun. You know, you still enjoy each other's company. You yeah. know, and. Not that we disagree a bunch. We don't. We don't have a lot, a lot of that. I don't think. Uh, and there's. I don't detect a lot of friction between us. Um, Not in this group. No. That, and we all have very different um, um, thresholds for uh, what we consider success. Um, so that's why I like coming here every year. Um, and and the, and the week prior with you, Joe. Um, it's just we respect each other's values and uh, uh, don't try and force ours on each other. Mm-hmm. Walks and talks, mm-hmm. interrupted by occasional action, more yeah. more or less. Yeah. And then, and then we all share birds, so it makes it look mm-hmm. like we got a whole bunch of them, so we can 
we can hashtag Instagram. <laughs> <coughs> we did take pictures of that same bird in two spots, didn't we? Of course. <coughs> At least two. Yeah. If you're not doing that nowadays, are you even on the gram? <laughs> <laughs> There's, I have a, I, I will probably post it on the Bird Camp Facebook page, or actually, no, I'll do it on Instagram. I got a picture of you taking a picture of a bird yeah. on the on the log pile there at, at the edge of one of the cuts. He's got his gun. He's got a glove underneath the gun. He's got the bird laid right there next to the action. Now, I mean, it wasn't some fancy scrolled out side by side or nothing, but it's a nice gun for you. It's, it's one with some meaning. Let's stop there. That's a nice gun for you. Exactly. What does that mean? Is that an insult or a compliment? No, I think that's a compliment. Okay. That's a, that's a statement of fact. Oh, if he good. saw what I spend on a gun, he would never take it into the grouse woods, uh, which I'm... Not sure why I do, but yeah, I mean, when I, when I stretch. After the, especially after how you shoot with the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I could never get it all to line up, and we'll, I will have to tell that story, won't I? Yeah. No, the, uh, we'll, <laughs> the conditions of there made it kind of tough. Not the shooting. I mean, I saw more birds flushed, and... Normally I get pretty confident when that happens, but uh, yeah. didn't didn't work out that way. But the you you said too, you know what what's your what's your uh, definition of good handling and dog work right there is as he's taking this picture, his dog scout comes right back into the picture and recovers the bird right off the pile. Yeah, pulled it off the pile. Held right onto it, nice and firm hold too. It was yeah. it was really nice. Had to do the flank pinch to to get him to let go. Of Where's this coming from? Got, got a little pent up frustration, buddy? Your, your daylight's burning. He That's what he was saying. Daylight's he burning. Been a little frustrated. Yeah, I find I find a lot of the dog after a few minutes they have they each have their uh, meter that goes off and said, You're wasting time. We could be hunting. Or he looked at me and said, You're wasting ammo. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, kind of one of those things too. Look, Conditions, we'll, we'll start there a little bit, right? We started out with a snowstorm, and then... A beautiful and, day. And then it turned, into, it turned into the Mojave. Yeah. It was crunchy. Like, the trails were crunchy. Yeah. Well, that's... I mean, that's very typical of the central Upper Peninsula to the western UP. You know, that not so much east and not so much far west, but sandy soils... Um, they drain quickly, and we had a drought this year. We had a significant drought up here this year, and any precipitation that you get is going to be soaked up and dry up immediately, and we saw that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, same conditions downstate, really. It was very, very dry all, all spring, and then we got a couple good rains in late summer, but um, we're way below, I think, what we should be. When you drive around and you see... Areas that are typically, um, you know, marshes that are deep in water that are just mud bowls now. Um, the water levels are down significantly. And it seemed to have uh, impacted the uh, the bird habits a little bit and where they were and when. Right, and even the northern lower last weekend before before I came here, <coughs> same thing. Hey, do I, am I going to need my rubber boots? If it rains, you've got 10 minutes of waiting. 
right. and, you're, and you're back to, to good again, at least where, where we were going to be. And that's been the situation here. Now, how that affects the way you hunt, or at least it affects the number of birds you see, because everything by now has been shot at for a month and a half. Oh, this, this type of, and this is the discussion that I think everybody that hunted with me heard this phrase. Seasons like this make good dogs great. Because those birds are, they're pressured. I mean, everybody has been up in the Upper Peninsula since September 15th. So I didn't, I didn't pull my trigger uh, the first two days, and we moved at least seven birds each day, and uh, the dogs would be on point, and I'd get to within 30 yards of the point, and the birds would flush. Oh yeah. Very, very, yeah, very jumpy. So there was a, it was almost like the perfect storm this year because of the um, warmer temperatures and the extension of summer <clears throat> into mid-October, if not the third week of October, you still had foliage on the floor of a lot of the forest yeah, that the you'd be hunting. Well. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then combined with all of the hunting pressure up here, mm -hmm. it just makes for a perfect storm of birds that are now adapting to be able to run more mm -hmm. because there's more cover they don't have to sit tight and like i said that that just makes your good dog great when they're handling those type of birds in that condition so on one side you can say well man you know i wish we could get more shots at birds or you know maybe i got to put a tighter choke in and it, it, but the flip side of that is your dog's actually handling very heavy pressured birds. And in a normal year, it's going to look like a rock star. And in some dry conditions. And in, yes, if you, you know, we could talk about scent for what, six weeks? Mm -hmm. You know, but the reality is when it's dry like that too, there's the scenting conditions are very, very poor. Yeah. And it's, in a way, the challenge. Is something you gotta you have to step up to the challenge anyway, right? It's not like we're gonna sit around and talk politics instead of going hunting. But in, in the way in the way each of our dogs work, right? Every one of us at the table has a different style of mm -hmm. dog run. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah. Perry, hi, can you highlight a little bit about the dogs you were running, and was there a change in the way Dennis had it when his dogs run big? Is there a, is a was there any kind of a, a distinction between the two? Well, as I've gotten older, uh, I mean, I've never been a, a personal fan of, of, of big, big running dogs. Um, Elk is ten and a half, and he's, you know, he's always been pretty comfortable, a good, good one for checking in and working tighter, and he's closed his range up, you know, considerably, which is, you know, probably nice to walk to a point that's um, not so far through the woods in the obstacle course. Um, Logie's younger, made of rubber, and has a tendency to stretch it out more. But I've actually been been uh, bringing him in a little bit more too, and that feels more comfortable. And I feel like he's a little more thorough like that, not leaving so many uh, so many holes. Um, I like when we have you know Dennis and I ran as a brace, uh, two different braces with with my dogs with his, and I liked that they complemented 
each other's style, and I think there was a, a thoroughness to that, mm -hmm. the two different styles. Um, and David and I, um, we, we, we did that yesterday. Um, but it seems, seems like they kind of were, even though their styles are different, they were kind of going over the, the um, some of the same cover, even though Elk works, works closer. Um, your guy got there before Elk on some of that. And uh, we, we split up a little bit after that inadvertently. But um, I mean, it really depends on the style of every dog. In, you know, in my, in my experience, I know some people have consistently have a lot of dogs of one type or another because that's what they like. But I mean, I do like seeing the, uh, the different working ranges and styles of dogs. And I, but, but in any event, I think very often having a couple dogs on the ground that work differently um, is more thorough. Um, that's really my preferred way to do it because it's, it's been my experience that if you get two, you know, phenotypically identical dogs on the ground at one time, they're going to race. There's going to be a competition for sure. of sorts. And when you, you know, when you have a dog like Elk that's staying under 80 yards, you know, he's in that 60 to 80 yard pocket. And then first, like we had Gypsy down that one day and Gypsy's starting at 80 and going out to 150 or so they're not racing one another and the the dog that is out further may draw us to a certain por portion of the cover that maybe we weren't going to hit and then it's kind of like the, it's kind of like in the military sense that dog is the cavalry scout mm -hmm. right and then and then the infantry and the armor come up <laughs> to, to engage in battle and i i think it works great because i I think we'd all agree if you get two very similar types of dogs on the ground that just becomes a gong show yeah because that that can be frustrating but it's when it when it comes together and you, you you see that you know the one dog is working closely and the other dog's working a little further out it, it just feels very thorough and it, you know I, i'm pretty sure that is the case um you know um my dogs are the same breed and out of the same kennel um but uh, they're they're different dogs. One's a one's a, a rocket, and the other one's kind of a uh, he's a little tighter. Um, but when we started out this week and I ran them together, it was kind of a race to begin. But um, eventually they figured it out, and I was actually I got to the point where um, walking on a trail and have one bell on the left side and one bell on the right side, and they both um, covered their own kind of ground very well. Um, Archie likes the uh, the edges, the conifer edges, a little better. Morgan likes the um, the hills and the, uh, the 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 you know cut saplings. So um, it worked out perfectly, actually. The dogs, I couldn't be happier with the way that they actually could see them grow this week, um, both as a team and, to, and individual. And I think for the purposes of, like, a lot of people that may listen to this podcast are people that are maybe reaching out for information on what type of dog should I get or what style, mm. what works best for grouse or whatever. It all goes back to the old saying of what makes you happy, right? Mm -hmm. Get out there and hunt with some people that have a comfort different styles of dogs and find one that you would be comfortable with because it's ultimately up to your happiness. There is, 
the only difference between the dogs that we're speaking about that may run bigger or may stay closer in, the only difference is our happiness with them. They're still finding birds. You're still killing birds. You're just doing it in a different way. And I think that as you, you know, for people who are more new to this, they'll find that with more information and experience, their tastes and preferences will become more refined. They'll become more clear through doing what it is that they actually feel comfortable with, what works mm -hmm. for them. Because um, how can you possibly know from the, you know, at the outset? You know, you take, it takes experience and finally, and sometimes it takes a lot before you say, hey, I like, this is what I like. And sometimes when you start, you get older and you don't, you know, if you don't want to walk, you know, climb over, um, horizontal alders to get to a point that's a mile away <laughs> you appreciate a closer working dog or you don't want to bus cover as much mm -hmm. do we need to clarify that the the heavy panting in the background is, is dennis is uh, my, no it's my coming through uh, his facebook feed no it's, it's my, 15, my 15 year old retired dog panzer i didn't want everyone to think i was over here looking at a subaru and getting all excited <laughs> Panzer, however, is excited. Dave left some biscuits and gravy on the plate here, and uh, he's he knows what he's he knows what his goals in life are now. That's right. And uh, it's always at the table. But uh, one of those things too, the number of miles we walk, right? We're looking for grouse, and we put on what twelve the other day. You said twelve yesterday, yeah. And at one point, you looked at your. You looked at your GPS and said, we are 5,000 feet from the truck. And that was as the crow flies, and, and we did not go back that way. But we put in a lot of distance. We flushed as many birds maybe on the way back out as we did on the way in. Yeah. So we, Well, that's an important yeah. thing, too, to talk yeah. about when you, when, you, when you hunt. You know, it's, it's very... We could get into the different stages of hunting, but ultimately a lot of people want to shoot a bird. And when you want to kill, it tends to rush the process for you. So what you do is you get those habitat maps or whatever, and you concentrate on certain areas, and you go to them, and you hit them really hard, but you hit them really fast, and boom, 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 you go to cover, to cover, to cover, right? If you are actually going to just take the time that you would spend going to three different locations trying to bang, 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 and invest that time in a good long walk through different cover types, you will find, and I think this is what Perry's gonna get at, you get deep enough that by the time you go back, things reset themselves and you're hitting you're hitting this you're hitting birds again on the way out. Mm -hmm. It makes it a full circle thing. It's not just run and gun. There's so so much to that. You know, there's the pressure, there's um but the you know, you've got a dry year up here, and it's it's definitely evident to me. And time of day makes a difference, you know. So, uh, you know, yesterday, for example, David and I were out there. It was um, was sunny and feeling kind of dry, and those and we were happened to be uh, working an aspen cut, and clearly was nothing happening on those on those edges. So after we split up, my encounters were all in the, uh, the, the wet swales, small older swales with some conifers surrounding them um, in uh, 
that's that's where I moved my birds. But then later on, an hour later, when the birds came out to uh, some of those trails to um, get greens, uh, maybe even to grit, the the birds were in a different place. They were they were in the places where people like to find them for you know for about an hour or so, hour and a half, I guess. Um, but you know, again, drought time of day, um, you could go up a trail and, and, and have nothing happening and come back an hour later and, and have things happen. The birds could be there. So, And there's opportunity to learn there. If you were just pounding you know, a mapped aspen cut, you may miss that the 40-year-old cut behind it is a, is a loafing ground during the day. On the other side of that is another cut that's 20 years older. You know, and as you go through those transitions, just working away from the truck, you're going to pick up birds and then look around and say, well, this, I didn't hear about this on the podcast. Why are they in this spot instead? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes it's counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've, you know, I've hunted uh, on the lower and some few other places in West Virginia in, in, um, uh, Oak select cut, uh, areas and, and, and there, sometimes the birds are in, in crazy places that you you wouldn't expect them to be or that you in your mind you have this aesthetic about this experience that includes a particular dominant type of tree species you know and for us it's aspen you know the the, the, the ecology of the grouse is so tied to that but it doesn't mean that's the only place they're going to be you know they're, they're the white tails of the bird world you know in terms of their um, their diet you find can find anything in their crops Mm -hmm. So you got you got to pay attention to that. We even talked about the weirdest things that we found in crop contents over the years. Wasn't that a discussion one day? Yeah, you and I were talking yeah. about yeah. that down in West Virginia. I I had one that was completely full of salamanders. It was it's the strangest thing. If you don't think that they're carnivores, you know these little dinosaurs. They're they are carnivores. Dried maple seed um, pods, those whirly gig things that don't seem like they have much nutrition in them. I had one in New York that was full of the um, that pale green uh, dogwood berries, then these uh, dark green purple berries, and more of the dogwood berries, and it looked like a, uh, a striped uh, pool ball. <laughs> the, the crop transparent right through the crop, like they gorge as much as they, as it could, but they they can eat so many things. Lots of buds, lots of catkins. But uh, we had, we came across this a few times, and I don't even in a pressured area. The we had popcorn cubbies. There isn't really a better way to describe it, but the birds were still grouped uh, when we got there, and it wasn't. I don't think we started too early, so I'm I'm wondering is there. Is it still the broods are still held together even in November now? Well, it's or? been my experience up here that they do group back up just before winter time. But I also think that uh, the spot we went to was uh, not very well known would be the best way to put it. And I've been in there, I was in there uh, towards the end of August, early September for training. And then I did a guided hunt there with um, Bill and Russ, and then we went back. So I think in that case, every time I've gone in there, they've still been grouped up, and they, for whatever reason, it's almost as if they didn't disperse. And if they did, because there's two distinct 
coveys of birds within a half mile of one another, half mile to a mile or one another, they may have just cross-populated and ended up staying together. Very often, um, I, I've encountered birds clustered like that because there's a good food source there. Yeah. Something that's just happened. A soft mass perhaps might be in that area. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm no naturalist. I don't, uh, like I say, that's what I've, uh, I've observed. And those are the times where they'll go out like popcorn where you, you keep thinking it's the last one that went out, but, you know, one or two more um, <laughs> go out. Don't worry, all that naturalist stuff is changing anyhow. Yeah? Yeah. Well, they got to change the names of the birds. Oh, yeah, yeah. Make it kinder. And, right. uh, well, that's the equivalent of book burning, but we're not, we're not going to talk about that on this podcast. No, definitely don't say, don't say anything about book burning or um, no, no erasing the past. I, I, think it's, I think you're right. I, I, um, I had an experience the other day. Uh, I'd hunted um, twice and then and was figured I'd come home. Well, driving along the two track and um, just on the north side of a, a select cut, the logging operation actually, um, there was a strip of um, young growth, maybe maybe 10 years old, and but it had a huge, a thick understory of uh, blackberries throughout. It was maybe 300 yards, 400 yards wide, long by at most 100 yards wide. And uh, I sent the dogs in, and um, they went a little bit deeper than I wanted. I was walking down the road, and I whistled for the dogs, and right in front of me, one right after the other, five birds flew out. I couldn't see them, mm -hmm. but I heard five distinct flushes. Those birds aren't going to be there at any other time of the day, probably, than at night, and there's got to be a food source in there that they mm -hmm. were attracted to, so... Um, but most people would just overlook that kind of cover. They just drive right by because it doesn't look like uh, it's big enough. Too young. To, to, yeah, exactly. Well, not only too young, but even a big enough section of cover right, right. to waste my time and, and all of that to check out. But it actually turned out to be very productive. Um, and, 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 you know, it was getting dark and I didn't, it was, it was ideal for that time of day. And of course, well, like, I had to spend another half hour picking raspberry twigs out of the dog's ears. But the thing is, like, we noticed this on our walk, is that a lot of times I often talk about pay attention to the cover within the cover. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> yesterday, the first spot that Joe and I went to, we put up 18 birds in two and a half hours. Yeah, and we scared. So. And we scared a lot of them. You scared a lot of them. I got one. But... Uh, we went within a mile or so, mm -hmm. identical type cover, but it was a different time of day, and we went in there and... Grouse we, droppings all over in there. Grouse droppings all over, drumming logs, everything, and we were trying to scratch our head to why is this one different? Why are there no birds in here? But then Joe, you know, pieced it together and said, you know, the sun is shining right on this. There are no shadows in here, so they they got no place to hide. Mm -hmm. and you, you overlook how much they use the time of day to what type of cover they're in mm -hmm. because of things like shadows. Yeah. I want to go back real quick to what Dave said about a commercial logging operation and take this time to thank all of our sponsors with a rampant capitalist uh, thing here. I uh, forgot all my live reads, so we're just going to 
list them off and say thank you to Aspen Thicket Grouse Dogs and Uncle Grouse, Field Armor, uh, the most rugged upland equipment on the market. I just made that up, but it is. I've, it is. I've been beating on that, that gun case. I used mine yesterday on Georgia, yeah. the vest. But uh, we also have Second Chance Bird Dogs, helping get the most of a second chance when a puppy needs a new home. We also have Collar Clinic, who Grampy, my dad, uses religiously every time the Beagles need anything new. And uh, I'm going to embarrass myself. And no, Pine Hill Gun Dogs. Sorry, Scott. I, I didn't actually forget you. I was just in a hurry to remember. But uh, Pine Hill, of course, does versatile dog training, both water and uplands, as well as offers another few services. So thank you to our sponsors, and uh, we have now achieved our capitalist aim of promoting business. Back to, you were talking to the elements that were in, we looked at, it was almost all Aspen in our walk. At, at one yeah. point, the, it, it's kind of like a canvas, though. The more I thought about it, Aspen is pretty much everywhere. But you're not going to gauge if there's going to be a bird there. We could look at an Aspen thing and go, well, no, they won't be here. But, you know, we, we noticed the shadows. We noticed the heat. <clears throat> a handful of stumps in a spruce tree will produce a bird. Mm -hmm. the, the raspberries, right? The, the red whips that we saw where the density goes from normal Aspen to I don't want to walk in there. And uh, which is kind of nice depending on the dog because all you said is sometimes let it play out and see which way the bird goes. But uh, And the hunting pressure. Yeah. Absolutely, mm -hmm. because I can't stress enough, like the area we went to yesterday, nobody hunts. I live up here, I know that nobody hunts it. I'm gonna start having to like swap trucks every couple of years now that I said that, but. <laughs> When you, if we would hunt the same type of cover that we were hunting in that area yesterday, someplace else, the birds would not have been there. They would have either been on the edges or in an escape cover because they would have been pushed out already. So, Dennis, you're saying that folks should look for your maroon Subaru if they want to find out where that cover is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm debating. Well, I want to. Uh, I want to talk to the right people because I think we should start putting some EV charging stations at all the gems, but and that that will help determine you know what car I get. This electricity brought to you by coal <laughs> <laughs> or natural gas or natural oh. gas, which burns cleaner. Right, right. Oh boy, I you know none of us hunted the gems well up here. I know I drove by it about four times, and I thought at one time I might go in it just to see what it looked like. But judging by the parking lot, tourism is is pretty rampant. Earlier, well, earlier, earlier in the by year, the parking yeah. Lot, I, I call them outhouses. <clears throat> Every oh, no. trail is an outhouse because everybody that goes there just decides that they're going to take a crap and, <laughs> and wipe and leave it right at the gate. So. Well, that determines which dogs I will and won't bring into a gems. Then I got one that's uh, it's unpleasant when he finds those. Uh, those uh, those grouse enhanced management sites are uh, not really jewels any longer. They they do still showcase great cover, but they do. They, they really do. They, some of them are my some of them were my favorites. Um, Weren't those? Um, they're bird factories. I mean, we we have a forty-six thousand acre plus minus gem area up here that is 
essentially a bird factory because of the way they manage the habitat. And that's good, mm -hmm. but it also mm -hmm. leads us into the tragedy of the common situation. Mm -hmm. Well, there's one, there's one uh, near my house that I used to hunt years ago <coughs> before it became a gems. And then they, um, they did a lot of clear cutting in there. And I imagine at this point, it's probably fantastic bird habit, habitat. But um, from what I understand from people who are down there, they say that it's just absolutely crowded, jam-packed every, every day. So, Well, hopefully that's good. Mm-hmm. In what way? Growing Better more. than being where I'm from. Yeah. It, it does provide isolation <clears throat> for someone else, and it does grow the sport. Right. You know, yeah, it, it does is, grow the sport. It's it the classroom. Yeah, it provides it recreation opportunities for people, and it does grow the sport. Mm -hmm. It keeps the Buckeyes contained. Oh, or, <laughs> also, also going full circle, it provides closing of the sport for older people that are only able to walk those gem strips. So I was, I was you know, going to get to that because I think you had some insight into what the original purpose for those uh, gems yes. areas was, which was? Well, the original purpose was, the, uh, was to grow the sport and also provide opportunities for entry into the sport as well as closure from the sport for older people. They were meant to be almost like an easy button um, to facilitate young and old. And mm -hmm. it just kind of didn't turn out that way. Well, in my experience, I found that all the old guys are too proud to use the gems because that's for the old guys. <laughs> and so their knees will hurt like mad and they won't touch a gems. No, 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 no. That's, that's for other people. Yeah. Like, then there's, there are people who definitely like the low-hanging fruit, even though they're able to climb the tree and pick the higher fruit. Mm -hmm. I had one, and I'll this post. This will probably actually I did post this already on the Facebook there at the at the bird camp. But uh, I shot a bird that didn't fly. It ran. It was on the side. It was on the sunny side of a trail I was walking to get to a spot, and. Uh, and Scout was off doing his own thing, which is what I wanted him to do, is get off those trails and transition and, and hunt anyway. And this bird runs out into the trail. It looked to be dragging a wing, and it sat there. So I shot. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't going to fly if it looks like it's crippled up. Later on, I plucked it, and the picture is the plucked bird versus one I had shot the day before that I, that I plucked the breast on just to show the size difference. And the only thing I could find was there were some feathers pulled into a wound right where the wing meets the body, and that pellet had broke that bone at the shoulder. Mm -hmm. Besides that, I couldn't find any other marks on the bird, but it, it would shrunk down to the size of a robin. Like, I've seen fatter woodcock yeah. than this grouse. But, uh, you know, and I'm not going to lay blame on any any person or type or I'm not going to blame the 28 gauge 410 crowd or anything like that but this was one of those situations where marksmanship could have been the issue it could have been the, the shot size and distance or anything but a, a reminder to keep it within your reasonable skill level I'll point fingers and follow up and follow up yeah follow up and you know and I don't, I don't know if it, it could have been a guy like me who just had a really bad day no, I, I, well, but, well, 
I, I think this happens a lot more than we than we want to admit. Um, mm -hmm. Last year I had an experience uh, where I shot a bird and it was a perfect, I, I, it was a perfect left to right crossing shot and I pulled the trigger and I saw the shot, the, the, the shot column hit the wall of um, um, aspens uh, that uh, were along the edge of the road and it, that, that shot column arrived at the same time as the bird and I saw the bird's wing flat weird and the bird went straight down and I thought oh that's great and I sent the dogs in to retrieve and we looked for an hour and we could not find that bird mm -hmm. and of course it makes you feel sick to your stomach it does to not recover that that animal that you just you just you know it's you know gonna um, uh, suffer a, a lingering death but the next week a week later and 300 miles away uh, give or take Friends and I were hunting closer to home, and um, we had made the big loop, and they yelled at me, Hey, Dave, there's a bird over here. It can't fly. And um, I said, well, okay, don't chase it. We'll get the dogs over there. Got the dogs over there. Pointed the bird. Um, the bird did not want to fly, so I sent uh, Archie in to, to go collect the bird, and he brought it back to me. And the bird had a broken wing, just as you described the bird that you um, found the other day, um, with a, a broken wing, a, a festering wound underneath in the armpit area. So I think it happens a lot more, and 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 even as cautious as I am usually, I don't, I don't. I, I don't take a lot of shots that I know a lot of people probably will just because I don't want to chase wounded mm -hmm. wounded birds. But this was a perfect picture of, of, of a really, I thought, a, a very clean, uh, solid hit. And um, I still lost that bird. So um, uh, it's important to follow up. But, but at the same time... I think it's also important to, to at least um, you know face the reality that we're not perfect. Sometimes we 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 don't recover um, birds that we actually do shoot that we actually do hit, and it's just you know it's in the percentages. I, I try to minimize that that percent of my um, of my shooting. Living up here for over twenty years now, the number of crippled birds that my dogs find each year would probably amaze some people. I mean, we're finding, I'm finding, typically three a season while I'm out in the woods. But as the hunting pressure increases, and particularly since you're seeing bird camps opening weekend and the second weekend of September, where it's very early and the cover's still up. And I've been seeing this, this is probably about the third year now where that trend is the new, is becoming the new normal. The number, the number of cripples are increasing. I mean, there's a correlation to it. I don't have a scientific study other than I'm finding- Seems more you know, noticeable. Well, and, yeah. and more hunters. That's it's exactly what it is, more. it's more hunters, yep. yep. Which, you know, and that, like Dave said, that it's a game of percentages. We all, we all cripple them at some point. You know, yeah. there's, there's been, the reason I liked having a short hair too is cripples came back to me. Now, he tried to get them before they were crippled too. 
But, <laughs> right. But at the same time, I mean, that, that recovery is part of the dog work that, that we well, love as well. I, I've had uh, uh, Archie's uh, recovered. Archie has uh, recovered two cripples this year that would have lived a, another day. Um, he doesn't. He's not aggressive like a short hair. If the bird's still alive, he'll typically point it, and then I can release the dog to, to get the bird. But he's recovered too. That would have lived. Um, and if I didn't have a dog, I would not have found. Yep. Yeah. The uh, part of looking at that bird and thinking about it. The reason I I brought up four boxes and number sixes, mm-hmm. where that bird was hit, and it it may be an issue. And again, we're not going to cast too much blame uh, per se you know if, if that was a 30 yard shot with a number six that bird's dead on the ground it goes right into the vitals it busts that wing it busts everything important in the middle and you recover that bird within a few yards you know you if it's a number eight and it was at 40 yards and it had enough impact to break the wing pull in a few feathers and that bird runs off well come on man what are you doing Either, either choke that up and, and put such a swarm of eights out there that you get nine strikes mm-hmm. or go to, go to a bigger shot size you know, or say, hey, I, I'm limiting my distance because of my shotgun that I choose to shoot. And, uh, and this was in a fairly open area. It was in a transition between uh, a hardwoods full of berries and, and other cane and it was getting down towards where there were some aspen cuts but I was in this transition of 50 year old aspen and a lot of spruce so somebody could see a ways if that bird stayed within the area it was shot it's you could have easily had a 40 yarder mm-hmm. and hey you if you're choked for grouse in a thicket you're not a 40 yard gun anymore you no know, you're that's, right so just being conscious of, of when to stop shooting, when to shoot, you know, can, can maybe make that bird a recovered bird when it's still fat and, and then you at least get to enjoy it. Um, before we disparage anyone with light little guns. Yeah, but the, the people that use those typically are masters of their craft. There are some phenomenal 410 shooters. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't, I don't begrudge anyone for doing that again well, this these is, are, yeah an expert's gun or a beginner's gun yeah and, and and the problem is is that the beginner never graduates or graduates too late and again these, these things happen it's all part of the part of the learning process I think. it is i still found one of those one ounce sixes on our walk i still had a handful of those from from earlier in the the october wow. and uh i missed with it anyway it's not like i hit the bird but it felt good knowing I had a little extra firepower because I was getting frustrated. Yeah. It's, you can always always use enough gun. It was, it was a box of shells day yesterday for you, wasn't it? There's so many factors there, there and is. like, and there's no nothing definitive. Like nobody could say use this or do always do this because every single flush situation is different. Um, but the, the guiding principles. Are you know sh- you know shoot within um, stay in your wheelhouse mm-hmm. and, yeah. and and try to be as uh, responsible and follow up and and do some work with your dogs on recovery. Some dogs are wonderful and some dogs could be better if they had a little bit of work done. Stop trying to kill birds for anyone other than yourself. Period. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's Scout Parker. Yeah. 
It's different than Morgan. He's about ready. I was like, that's Morgan. He's going to get a load of hate from my mouth. It's a dog kennel. Dogs bark. That's what they do. There's a little drummer out there throwing a fit. He's still pissed that we put him on that kennel. That's a fantastic little puppy, man. That's Thank you. Really beautiful. He's he really cool. is. He's going to be a handful at two years old. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he'll, be, <laughs> he'll be going over my head. Ruin you. But uh, I wanted to to finish up on on a little bit with permission, of course, from Dennis. Uh, we had we all arrived on different days. Uh, you had told us too that um, the hospice had come in for your dad and mentor, and that you were going to be late. And you said, "No, we all insist that camp happens anyway um, mm -hmm. because it's important." And uh, mainly, I think for the conversation as much as the birds, camp is important. Um, and it so, is. so we did arrive. You know, Dave and I uh, let ourselves in, proceeded to spend half the night talking about civilization. Mm -hmm. Struggled through the next day till Perry arrived. You came in a day or two later, mm -hmm. um, and, and putting it all together. And you know, talking about this, the emaciated bird, or the you know a number of birds that that we I had to shoot one. It was running away from me, wounded. Two now this this week doing that. Mm -hmm. And there's there's always that connection to mortality that we as hunters see. You know the the deer that wobbles and falls when you shoot. You know those things happen. But um, in the face of of what what happened here, no, we're not we're not looking at us being the ones sending mortality out. We mm -hmm. we view it back as ourselves. Um, and and the speaking of civilization, right? The Stoics knew mortality was coming, and they. They face their own deaths in, a, in the inevitable way, really, of it could happen at any time. With us, we have modern medicine. It's not really at quite at any time like that, but they had to give them purpose. Um, they, it wasn't quite you only live once, but it was I'm going to live in a way where things are done on purpose with a direction in mind. Um, Deliberately. Exactly, yes. And, uh, and they turned out to be great great men who accomplished a lot of things um in our world as the hunting world right as somebody who needs to be a mentor what are some of those things that we can do purposefully as sportsmen and i just want to end kind of on a on, none of this will happen on accident right as we face face at some point i'm going to be in dennis's position you know and then someday my sons will be in that position but uh <clears throat> anyway, how do we how do we pick and choose, and what kind of purpose? Um, this is kind of a little clicheish, but what do we do with with facing that right? Because um, I'm already middle aged, so and I'm the young one here by seventy eight years, at least seventy eight years. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, Things as sportsmen that we do that we should be doing, you know, um, just kind of, kind of brainstorm a few things out there for somebody to listen to. I can think of a number offhand. Um, of course, anybody that knows me knows that I spend a ridiculous amount of time, and it shouldn't be called ridiculous, a large amount of time mentoring my sons in the outdoors, as. Do you, Joe, with your boys, mm -hmm. and Dave, you did with your kids, Perry, Young, younger. his children, and now yeah. he's doing it with his grandson. Um, 
we're seeing those guys. That's the next generation, right? I don't, I don't want to create more adult onset hunters, and I'm not going to go down that path. But I, and I'm going to teach them while they're young, because those values, and it is a set of values that comes from that. Um, those aren't being taught anywhere, no. other than within the family or from a mentor. Um, so that becomes extremely important to um, pass that along as best you can. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna step in and talk about adult onset hunters, and I think um, um, they're the future. They're younger than me. Um, oh yeah. And every year I get seventy percent of the population's the future, according to Dave. Eighty-five <laughs> percent, according to him. Uh, I get a few people that reach out to me every year, and. Um, uh, have a conversation with them about what they're what they're looking for and and and, and in their questions I can kind of detect um, why they're why they're reaching out and so I typically go out uh, every year I make it a point to uh, take people out new people out into the woods and uh, share with them not just um, you know how to find grouse but um, why you're finding them there, and it's not—it's—it's it's because the, the, of the management process and the fact that we're responsible for the habitat. Um, so I try to inculcate a sense of responsibility to continue that habitat because 20 years from now, when they want—if they want to continue hunting—they need to uh, perpetuate it. People that are older than teenagers have more immediate influence on the sport and the the conservation uh, function than kids who are 14. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, you know, if you can convey an appreciation for the habitat, not just in the grouse, show them how to pick mush, which mushrooms are safe to eat and which ones you're going to hate yourself if you do. Um, you don't have to hate yourself that's very much. That's right. No, that's extremely important. And those people yeah. that reach out like that, yeah. if they reach out to any one of us, <clears throat> we're gonna mentor them. That's right. Um, but but if you if you just post on Facebook, tell me where to hunt. You're not gonna get any help. No, you're gonna get blasted by because me. the sure. yeah the, the the intent I think is really important. Your trophies in the mail. Well, yeah. Okay, well, yeah, your trophies in the mail, and, and then there's also the you know the the adult onset group that are instant phenom hashtag know everything but we won't go down that road either they host the podcast those <laughs> oh man. I, but I, I, he made a good yeah and i'm sorry to cut you off but dave had a really good segue because he mentioned talking about habitat and why that's important and what was one of the hottest things we talked about this fall in michigan was what's the future of some of the state game areas that were funded with Pittman-Robertson funding, which is directly for wildlife management. And getting multi-use hunting. And now now it's about, well, you know, maybe we'll put a couple mountain bike trails in there Mm -hmm. and maybe we'll do this. and, and, And they're expanding the definition of recreation without thinking about wildlife management. 
that scares the hell out of me. That scares me more than anything. In southern Michigan, should be scared. They should be scared. And the oh, thing yeah. is, one of the things you can do to preserve the heritage is participate. Mm-hmm. You can go to the forest compartment meetings, or you can go online. You can comment on the forest compartment reviews. And all of those things are out there, the, the different types of plans and whatever it is. Here recently in, in the township that I live in, they're talking about expanding, you know, ORV trail use and having an ORV trail committee. And the township supervisor hadn't thought about this. When I saw the composition of the committee and what they were looking for, I called them and said, you need to put a hunter on there. Somebody that particularly hunts birds with dogs. And I wasn't looking to be me because there's tons of us that live here. Because you're going to directly affect an area that they use. And he thought it was a great idea. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's get one of those people on there. But if you're not participating in the habitat, Mm -hmm. somebody else that wants to use your habitat is participating. Even in the best of years... The, the the resource is constrained by the amount of habitat that there is. And it's one of the things that's very important for new hunters and, and older hunters um, to be aware of, and, and, and I think there's an ethical responsibility to participate in this, is to make sure the habitat's there, to make sure that they don't overtax the resource. You know, I think sometimes, especially when people travel, they want to, they want to kill a lot of birds. But there's a mentality of stewardship that's really very important. And if you know, for example, there's five or six birds in this parcel, you might take one bird, maybe two out of that. You need to know that there's more birds there for seed. And I think a lot of people, I've experienced this many times, they're just going to keep running down every bird that they can find without any regard to it, to that. And, and, and the birds grow organically naturally. You can't get them from a pheasant farm, you know, like, like, like with uh, put-and-take hunting. This is not put-and-take hunting, and it takes time for the birds to um, replace themselves. So people have to put limits on themselves. Mm-hmm. I think this came up last year, and, you know, I think, you know, I tried to make the point, but it's a sore point for me sometimes. When I see people, just they get the, the weasel bloodlust sometimes, and they just pursue, pursue, pursue. There's a lot to this sport besides bodies in your bird bag and uh, you know your, your friends or dogs, all the things. There's a spiritual component. And I recognize that people go through stages in their lives. This is well, you know, well um, considered and written about, um, but... It's, it's always nice to see people who are at a legacy stage earlier in their lives who are, are, are not about the kill so much as they are about the spiritual aspects and passing it on and taking care of it. And those are those I find that those are the best people with whom to spend time, those who, who carry that, that ethos. Yeah. I know part of, part of Dave's mentoring is, is once he shows them habitat or something else, he'll put something on the plate worthy of his game. And at that point, you know... Um, and whether it's the ethics of don't shoot them all, as Perry, whose New York experience probably rings more true there too, with with different habitats and and with, uh, I 
guess in a way, a little different grouse situation, right? Uh, how we honor the bird comes down to the way we take our hashtag pictures and everything else, you know, don't let the ruffled feathers show the way the beauty of the bird um, should be. How many All those things that, that go into simply um, showing enough respect well, and that changes our whole behavior. Right, exactly. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of you see a lot of the influencers post tailgate pictures of dead birds, but do they ever do they ever post pictures of the meals they prepare with those animals? They don't I mean, have your skill the ultimate, level. Well, you know, it's not that you know significant. But that it's just could be a whole, but that could be another episode. Well, it could be a whole other episode because when they're doing that for self-gratification or whatever means it may be to prove their value or their worth, ugly tailgate pictures are gasoline for anti-hunters. That's true, too. Okay? Yeah. And yep. I, I don't think people think about that. It, right? would, it would be better you wrapped it in bacon and took a picture of it on the grill <laughs> rather than on the tailgate. Absolutely. Yeah. You got something and, laying on the tailgate with ruffled feathers, missing a tail fan, all slobber all over it and stuff like that. Pine, pine needles and leaves, the head missing. You yeah, know, all I the, mean, oh, that yeah. is cannon fodder for anti-hunters. Those tailgate photos um, tell a lot about who's who's hunting and why they're hunting. And, you know, somebody could say, be pounding their chest when they, when they show the birds on the tailgate. Um, and it's about ego and uh, showing people, you know, how, how competent they are. Or it could be somebody saying, I really love this and I hope you do too. Mm -hmm. I, I like the picture, not post it. I like it because if it's in file, if it's in my 2015 hunting season file, I have a record of what happened and hopefully I recognize the parking spot and the people in the photo too. But at the same time, it there's nothing special about that beyond it's a it's a visual image of the camp log, you know. Mm. Um, but I would also say that you know, I really love this and I think you would too. Works just as well on a nice sunny stump with your gun and your dog sitting there mm -hmm. or sitting there not looking at the camera because my goodness you can never get one to look at it. Tells at a you. different story. It, it tells a it completely does. different story. And at the same time it still conveys the I think you would really love this. Yes. You know? And uh, something to think about just you know it avoids conflict in a way which is not something you guys are probably used to doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at Dave and and, uh, and Dennis on that one. Why would anybody avoid conflict? <laughs> Considering there's a tank commander and a marine, yeah. I, conflict really is part of their daily lives. Mm. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, I just wanted to end, I guess, on that right there. As as a uh, as living purposefully um, as hunters, we we see mortality more than the the local city park walker, um, and at the same time, you know. Ending on the honoring the bird, um, like George Bird Evans. Was that him? Yeah, I think it was him. You know, being worthy of your game is the phrase uh, that we can use there. Mm -hmm. That's the slogan he coined. Um, well, not only that, but what Perry alluded to mm -hmm. is, you know, people like to talk about reading Burton Spiller or whatever, but Burton Spiller in his letter, 
I think it's chapter 12 or 13. You post it every year. I post it every year, but mm -hmm. game is an early inheritance, Jimmy. Spend it wisely, right? Mm -hmm. It's important for people to realize that it's finite. You know, the passenger vision was, you know, used to blacken the sky and then they were gone. You know, we pushed to the Pacific Ocean always thinking there was more. There isn't always more. And we're in a time right. where our resource mm -hmm. is in decline. You know, people are working very hard to try to, to, to fight that, to, to, you know, to keep the resource going for the future. But it's, bottom line, it's limited. And there are fewer acres, huntable acres per hunter than there were 20 years ago, than there were 40 years ago, and it only declines. And the pressure is really great. So it's, it's important for every person to, you know, to... Well, it's, it's not just the passenger pigeon. The rough grouse is uh, going to be on the endangered species list in Indiana, of all places. New Jersey. You can't... Yeah. Ohio. I mean, you used to be able to hunt rough grouse all the way down to Georgia. Mm -hmm. And um, now Michigan is a destination state, and Wisconsin, Minnesota, because... We manage our forests. We manage our forests. I, I think a lot of people don't realize that the economics that goes into habitat and the, the, the real considerations of big agribusiness, the reason that Michigan isn't a destination pheasant state anymore is because the habitat changed. Why? Because economics. Large agribusinesses bought the fragmented family farms that used to predominate this, this state in the 20th century. So there's no more pheasant habitat um, unless you have dedicated effort to create habitat. Um, and now, of course, we're spending money putting birds out instead of expanding on that habitat. Mm -hmm. So uh, there, it's, there, there are a lot of factors that, that go into um, the abundance of birds, whether in the case of the passenger pigeon, we just kill them off or the buffalo or... In really the, more relevant in their habitat right that's more relevant now you i kill, think it's, you it's kill habitat. more you kill more birds yeah you know in in the case of the pheasant the tractor killed way more than mm. we could ever shoot yeah yep. the logging did worse for the passenger pigeon in their nesting ground yep. than, than the guns could do and drought did the same thing to the ducks in the in the dust bowl yep the, the hunter never takes what a, pro, a prolific prey species can replenish. Right. Well, and again, again, it's hunters that invariably lead the restoration effort. Uh, the the there have been ducks are, are incredibly mm -hmm. abundant now because of Ducks Unlimited. Um, you know, there are various um, ways that uh, uh, hunters contribute to game management areas that we have to protect we have to protect those the, the, that the, those those purposes um and and not let that purpose get distracted by um just you know uh, uh random consumption nobody nobody would begrudge anyone from strolling through the woods but to take Pittman robertson dollars that are that are provided by um hunting tax dollars and turn it into a skate park or a mountain bike park mm -hmm. seems a little um well, it's offensive actually. it is it's very offensive yeah. it's not just michigan it's you know new york does it too they want they would for it was a perennial problem to uh that they were looking to raid the sportsmen's funds to put into the general funds of the budget. Of course. Well, and, that's because both of those states are, well, I'm yeah, not, not going to go there. Well, people can draw their own conclusions <laughs> about who leads those states. Yep. Yes, but, exactly. Uh,
Well, we'll we'll wrap up then on the find a way to live purposefully. I and you know I if I could for just a minute like mm-hmm. I if people don't know my father passed away um, the first day of bird camp, so I had spent the time with my family, uh, seeing my father cross over into another life and. Thankfully, I was able to be there and and thank him for the time that he spent with me to be able to show me this sport. Because I don't know if I, I mean, this turned into, this isn't really what I do, it's who I am. And I wouldn't have had that without that, without that spark. So um, I'd like to thank all of you for agreeing to continue this camp in his honor because that's what he would have wanted. Um, I'd like to thank my mother for being strong and her sister, Charlotte, for being there with her. So my mom could say, hey, why don't you go to bird camp? Because that's what your dad would want. So there's a lot of moving parts behind the scenes to make this happen. But first and foremost, it wouldn't have happened if you guys wouldn't have said, hey, let's go. A quick sponsor break. Field Armor, the toughest dog vest on the market. Help protect your dog from cuts, scrapes, and impalement in the field. A dog vest is much less expensive than an emergency vet. Use the promo code BIRDCAMP, B-I-R-D-C-A-M-P, with no spaces for free shipping. Don't miss out on some of their other rugged upland products and visit FieldArmorUSA.com today. And Pine Hill Gun Dogs, located in Rockford, Michigan. Pine Hill offers boarding and training for your gun dog, whether it's the uplands or wetlands you enjoy with your dog. Pine Hill Gun Dogs wants to be a part of your success this season and wishes to remind you that the greatest conservation tool is a well-trained dog. I'd like to thank you again for listening. It's been a pleasure to talk with all these interesting people and to bring those conversations to you. If you would, please take the time to like and share or rate and review this podcast. It will help get the word out to others who may also enjoy uh, conversations kind of like these. You can find us on Facebook under Bird Camp. Follow there as well as on Instagram now at Bird Camp Pod, one word. If you want to support the podcast, Financially, we do that through Patreon just for a couple of bucks. I figure the cup of cup of coffee or the price of a beer a month is pretty cheap. I'm good for it. And uh, you take those funds and use those for either an expense here at the podcast or if there's any excess, it goes into something fundraising for conservation or kids in the outdoors or some such things as that. And uh, hopefully 